Well, this morning, before we go into God's Word together, I have three announcements um, about things pertaining to the life of the church that I want to make you aware of um, so that you can know about things and be in the loop. The first is that starting in January, January 7th, we are going to be going to a 9.30 a.m. worship service time. The reason that we made that decision has to do with our desire to reach as many people as possible. And after talking with people at various stages of life in the congregation, um, and also seeing people stop by early before the service, looking for the service, uh, we decided that we were going to move the service time to 9.30 starting in the new year. Seems like a good time to start something new. Um, so throughout this year, we'll remain at 10.30, but then January 7th, Sunday, January 7th, we will be, um, we will be going to a 9.30 a.m. worship time. What this means for your Bible study is that we will, Bible, study, Bible studies can either meet before or after, and so uh, be looking for announcements from your Bible study teachers if you're used to going to a Sunday morning Bible study. But our, our desire in this is really to just reach more people and to have a service time that we think um, is going to really connect with, with, with young families especially um, that tend to be drawn towards earlier worship services. So that's the first announcement. The second announcement is that Calvary really wants to be a church that resources you, not just on Sunday morning, but through the week for you to grow in your faith and in your discipleship and your following of Jesus. And one of the ways you do that is just with books and resources. And so um, if you've never been into the office of the church, there's a little space between the office of the church and the pastor's office that we have put together a resource library. And I want to thank Mark and Amelia Nudoff for helping out with this. They, um, they, they shared an idea and we had lunch and we came up with, um, we came up with the, the idea of having some resources outside the pastor's office. So if you are looking for information on, on marriage or on uh, if you're looking for a Bible, or if you are looking to grow in your faith, there are some resources there specifically for the next pastor that he can direct people to. Because oftentimes as a pastor, people come up to me after church and they say, hey, I'm, I'm dealing with this issue. And I'll say, well, there's a good book. And they don't write it down. And you and I both know nothing happens. What I'd rather do is say, follow me. I've got a book to put in your hands today. And that's what we've got. And so that's the resource library. It's an exciting development, and it'll be a benefit to the next pastor. On that note, the pastoral search committee has uh, brought a candidate to the leadership team, according to our constitution and bylaws, for them to interview and consider inviting to come and preach to the church for a meeting and then a vote for that person to become the next, pres the next pastor of, uh, of Calvary. Um, and so where we're at in the process, one of our commitments is to keep everybody just in the loop on what's happening. The search committee has interviewed, read lots of resumes, interviewed different candidates. They found a candidate that they feel strongly about. They've recommended that candidate to the leadership team. And then the leadership team will now plan a meeting with the search team um, and then announce sometime, hopefully in the new year, where we'll be able to, sometime in January, invite that candidate to come and preach. Following that, there'll be opportunities for people to, to meet that individual, and uh, we'll, we'll release other information about that person. And then uh, a, a, meet, a, a business meeting will be called. The purpose of that business meeting would be to vote on that candidate. 
So uh, I get lots of questions, where are we at in the process? And we have a candidate, they're being recommended to the leadership team. And you can anticipate sometime in January an opportunity to meet that candidate, learn more about that candidate. Um, and sometime in January, we hope um, to have a meeting where we hear him preach and then as a church vote on the candidate. So exciting things are happening. I'll be here through all of it. And so um, I'm not just going to disappear and you won't see me again. But as interim pastor, my job is to shepherd the church and also to help the leadership team in the process. I want to commend the members of the leadership team. I'm sorry, the, the members of the search team trying to make eye contact with all of them. It is a big responsibility. It is a hard job. And as you have an opportunity, it would be appropriate for you to just personally communicate your appreciation. And also, I'd like to ask your prayers for the leadership team as they now, so to speak, take the baton and take us to the next step in the process. Hopefully that makes sense. If you have any questions about that, feel free to talk to me in the foyer. I'd be glad to talk with you about that. And um, more than anything, I'd like you to just really pray for our church, for our, the processes set out in our bylaws, for the people that are following those processes, just to have wisdom and clarity from God that God would continue to lead us to the pastor that he has prepared, selected, and chosen for this church, okay? Well, with those announcements, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We are in Advent season, and so we are going to be looking at a wonderful gospel passage about the birth of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1. And as you turn there, let me tell you the title of the sermon, which if you have the bulletin, you've already read it, and you're already perplexed because you're thinking, I've never heard a Christmas message with this title. Hopefully it'll make sense by the end of the sermon. The title of my sermon is Christmas is War. Christmas is War. And my text is Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. So if you'd follow along with me as I read, and then I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Let me read and then I'll pray. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call him his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do adore you. We do delight in beholding your glory just to sing songs about your, your worth and your majesty, your goodness, your faithfulness. God, this morning we declare that 
Although we are great sinners, you are a great Savior. And we want to shift our hope from the things of this world, anything we can do, totally and completely onto Jesus Christ. God, this morning we, we do adore you, but, but we are weary. We're tired. We hurt. We ache. We're bothered. We're upset. We're scared. We're angry. God, and we pray this morning for ourselves and our weariness. I pray for weary brothers and sisters that you would strengthen them, that you would remind them of what is true. I pray, God, that you would lift their head to see the hope that is ours in Christ. I pray, Lord, that this morning as they leave, that your spirit would be working in them to give them faith, to believe, to trust, to follow. Lord, if there's anyone just sort of stuck in temptation and sin, would you set them free? Would you remind us, God, that you allow adversity and affliction and suffering into our lives to shape us, to mold us, to cause us to grip this world a little less and look to the next world, the world to come, the world of the kingdom of your son Jesus a little more. God, what we want to do this morning is behold your glory, and so I pray that you'd enable us to do that by faith, to see an invisible world with a real Savior who will come again for us, to trust him, to love him, to follow him. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, back in the 1970s, John Lennon and Yoko Ono came out with a Christmas song titled, Merry Christmas, War is Over. It's a protest song. It's popular today because at Christmas we tend to think about peace. We tend to think about our yearning for peace and our desire for an end to hostility and conflict. And of course, one of the names given to Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Because Jesus does bring peace. But this morning, the title of my message is Christmas is War. It's not a hot war with guns or bombs. It's not a cold war with retribution and rhetoric. It's not like any human war, actually. But the birth of Jesus is like the invasion of the Allied forces at Normandy in World War II. It was an event that signaled the beginning of the end. It brought about peace, but first there was a war to fight. Jesus, in coming as a baby, landed, if you will, in enemy territory to fight and deliver, all by himself, the final blow to our enemy, sin, death, and even Satan. If you were there the night that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, you would not have sung, Merry Christmas, the war is over, but Merry Christmas, the war has started. We read about the war that Jesus came to fight and win for us in our text today. Just like newspapers around the world declared the beginning of the uh, the, the Allied forces in France in June 1944, or any war is heralded in newspapers, an angel announces to Joseph that the liberation force of God was soon to arrive on earth. Matthew has laid out in our text, look at verse 18, he says the way in which the birth of Jesus took place. 
In other words, Matthew was saying, let me tell you what really happened. This is fact, not fiction. So here are the facts. Mary, we're told, was betrothed to Joseph. Now, betrothed is not a word we use very often. It's not even really a category that we have. We talk about engagement, and sometimes we substitute that word engagement for betrothed, but betrothal is different than engagement. It's like engagement, but it's a covenant commitment. So Joseph and Mary were in a covenant relationship to be married, which is why in the text it refers to Joseph as her husband. So so betrothal is like entering into a contract on a house. The deal's not done, but there's paperwork and the stakes are high. It's not a casual relationship that can be easily broken. So while they were betrothed to be married, Joseph finds out that Mary is with child, that Mary is pregnant. Now the text doesn't tell us how he found out, but this isn't rocket science. Um, I was then at an event yesterday and I watched uh, uh, one of our students who was graduating see one of my employees that's with child and her face lit up and she said, you're pregnant, she could just tell. And Joseph comes to a point where he can tell that Mary's pregnant, as one does. And we get a glimpse into Joseph's character. Look at verse 19. It says that Joseph was a just man, and he didn't want to put her to shame. That word, putting someone to shame, means to expose her. Joseph didn't want to expose her, is the word. He didn't want to put her to shame He didn't want to embarrass her. He didn't want to make an example of her. He's a just man, and we could say he's a kind man. Joseph knows that he's not been intimate with Mary. No reason to think he's the father. Mary, the Bible tells us, was a virgin. Look in verse 18. We're told that she is with child by the Holy Spirit meaning it was the non-physical third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, that caused Mary to be pregnant with Jesus. It's never happened before in human history. It'll never happen again. This was a miracle. Isaiah 7.14 is quoted in verse 23. If you look at verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is really important. It's important that you know who Jesus was. Maybe nothing is more important about you than what you believe about Jesus. So here's what you should believe about Jesus. Jesus is God himself in the flesh. God has entered into rebel territory in order to save his people from sin and death. Unlike any other human teacher, unlike any other religious leader, unlike any human guru or self-help expert or human politician, Jesus is fully man, fully God. He's a sinless man and God in the flesh. Now, why is that important? Because humans, we can't save ourselves. 
We're the ones who need saving. We aren't saviors, not at all. We are part of the problem, not the solution. When you come to Calvary, I'm never going to present myself as the solution to your problem. I'm never going to present our church as the solution to your problem. Because we don't believe that. We believe that Jesus is the one that God sent to save us. Because He knew we couldn't save ourselves. So He came to save us. He came to suffer for us. He came to live righteously for us. He came to teach us. He came to die for us. And He came to come back to life for us. Now, it's important to understand that God had said all of this would happen. You might think, well, when did God say this would all happen? Way back in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3.15, God says as he's delivering curses on the earth and on Adam and Eve, he says that the seed of the woman would be wounded, but the seed of the woman would strike the death blow to the serpent. Who's the serpent? Satan. What what does Satan represent? Sin and death. So way back in the Garden of Eden, God said, one will come born of the woman. Not born naturally, just as people are born, but born supernaturally. The seed of the woman would be wounded, but would crush the head of the serpent. And so... Here it is, that promise fulfilled. God says, I will win. Here is the birth of the Savior. God himself has come, which means the war has begun. Christmas is a declaration of war. Now back to Joseph. Joseph didn't know all of this. He's a just man. He's a kind man. He's a reasonable man. So he figures, I see that Mary is pregnant. I know I'm not the father I'm just going to quietly divorce her. Now, why would you divorce someone when you're not married? Well, as I say, they were betrothed. They were under contract to be married. Joseph would have had to break the contract, and it was allowed to break the contract in circumstances where one suspects that the other has been unfaithful. And so Joseph figures, I'll quietly divorce her, I'm not going to shame her, but I'm going to get out of this. It's not my son. I'm not the dad. And I'll just get out of this quietly, the text says in verse 19. But in in verses 20 through 23, Joseph has a dream. Joseph has the dream. In fact, the, the, the meat of this passage takes place in this dream. Now, I want you to understand this is not an instance of the Freudian subconscious. This is not dream interpretation. This is a vision that God gives Joseph in his dream. We're not supposed to read this and think, well, every dream I have has some, some supernatural meaning. It might just be what you ate for dinner last night. But that's not the case with Joseph. God is communicating the birth of the Savior to Joseph in a dream. It's part of the miracle of the birth of Jesus. An angel appeared to him, and like a mom or a dad using their child's full name to get their attention. Did that ever happen to you? You knew that mom or dad was serious when they use your full name. Well, look how the angel addresses Joseph. Joseph, son of David. Now, it matters that Joseph is in the lineage of David 
because over a thousand years before this event where Joseph is having the dream, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13 and verse 16, there was a prophecy from the time of David about the birth of Jesus. Let me read it for you. Again, this, what I'm about to read, was written a thousand years before Jesus was born. 2 Samuel chapter 7 says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up an offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God had promised one in the lineage of David who would be king forever, who would have a kingdom forever. And the angel is saying to Joseph, that time has come and it is being fulfilled in Mary what was prophesied from the dawn of time in the Garden of Eden. So the angel tells Joseph Mary's pregnant and the person she's pregnant with is the long ago prophesied king who would set up the new kingdom. So understand what the angel's saying. A new king is coming. A new covenant is coming. A new kingdom is being established. The liberating forces are behind the enemy line. The war has begun. Christmas is a war. I love fireworks. I don't know about you, and I don't know why, but the other day I was thinking about fireworks. If you're around on the 4th of July, who doesn't love a good firework show? Well, when you go to a firework show, you're there for the fireworks, obviously. But what you're really there for is the finale. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. You sit there through the whole firework show, but what you really want to see is the finale. Because the finale is when all the fireworks go off and all you have to do is sit there with your mouth open, just going ooh and ah. Well, the Old Testament is filled with prophecies about Jesus, and they are all like individual fireworks. Only the firework show of prophecy about Jesus didn't just go on for, I don't know, 20 minutes. It went on for thousands of years. For thousands of years, not often, but every couple hundred years, a firework of prophecy would go off in the night sky. A, a prophecy about the Messiah. A little bit about what he would be like. A little bit about what he would suffer. A little bit about what he would be named. A little bit about what he would do. And against the darkness of suffering in the history of God's people, like a night sky, there are individual fireworks going off. But in our passage, Matthew 1, understand this is the finale. Now all the prophecies are coming true. Verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the finale. All the prophecies are culminating in this announcement. The angel says to Joseph, the child in Mary's belly is the one who will do everything that has been prophesied. And the angel says, you're going to name him Jesus. As I said in my weekly email, 
In modern days, we name children for all kinds of different things. You know, uh, I have four children, some of you know that. And I remember my wife and I wondering what we're going to name each child. And sometimes you name a child after a loved one. Sometimes you name a child uh, something just unique to be creative. Sometimes you just like the name and you name the child what you're going to name the child. But seldom do we live up to the meaning of our names. Even if you know the meaning of your name, seldom do you live up to that meaning for good or for ill. But the angel specifically says, name your son Jesus. This is his name. It's not your choice, Joseph. It's not your choice, Mary. The name of the child is Jesus. Now, why does that matter? Because Jesus, the name Yeshua, means God saves. And Jesus does live up to the meaning of his name. And so the peace that we have with God through faith in Jesus the peace that we can have with one another is possible because Jesus came to fight the war we couldn't fight. Jesus came to deliver us from sin and death. He fulfilled the mission. He purchased us with his blood. He died and rose again to save us from our sins. He fought the war. And here's the gospel. We participate in his victory through faith. If you're here this morning and you want to know what will save me, Jesus saves he won the war. Well, what do I do? How do I participate in his victory? How do I get from the losing side to the winning side? You participate in his victory by trusting him to be your savior. Now, there are some specific points of application in this passage that I want to highlight to challenge us and to encourage us. First, first, in this passage, we see very clearly our job is to trust God. Look at verse 22. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. So what do we take away from a descriptive passage about Joseph and an angel regarding a situation none of us will ever find ourselves in? Okay? Well, one of the things we take away is that our job as Christians is to trust God. Trust God. Specifically, trust the Lord to do all that His Word says. God won't fail to do anything He says He will do. God says He forgives those who trust in Jesus. So trust Him to forgive you. God says that heaven awaits us when we die. And so when you have fears of death, trust that when you die, you will be in the presence of your Savior. God says He shapes us in suffering. So this morning you're suffering. Trust God to be shaping you. God says that Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's not popular, but trust God. Christmas reminds us that God's word comes true and that we can and should always trust God. There's a phrase I've heard recently. It's the phrase trust issues. Someone says, I have trust issues. Have you heard this before? Trust issues. Well, I get it. People do let us down. And you might have reasons to have trust issues with your friends or your family or even a church. But you can trust God. He's never let us down. Everything you read in His Word will come to pass. So for whatever reasons you might have trust issues with humans, this passage reminds us to trust God. He does what He says He will do. Now, this does not mean we understand everything. 
Can you imagine Joseph waking up for, from that dream? I doubt Joseph woke up and said, it all makes sense. It's all so clear. <laughs> I have no doubt that Joseph woke up scratching his head, and if he lived today, he'd be looking for a strong cup of coffee. But complete trust doesn't require complete understanding. You can decide to trust God. You can decide that God has proven himself. I mean, after all, you live in his world. You literally live in the world he created. You're breathing his air. You're receiving right now the benefits of living in God's world. And so, you can decide, I'm going to trust him. That's a decision involving faith about unseen realities but it's a reasonable faith that's supported by the evidence you can decide this morning, I'm going to trust Jesus by the grace of God. Trust God. Number two, don't fear. One of the repeated messages in the gospel stories surrounding the birth of Jesus is don't fear. Almost every time an angel shows up, the first thing the angel says is, don't fear. In verse 20, the angel says to Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The angel doesn't think that Joseph's afraid of the angel. The angel knows that Joseph will be afraid of the consequences. And so the angel says, don't fear. Now, why did the angel say that? Because Joseph needed to hear that. Joseph needed to hear, don't be afraid. You can imagine what might some of his fears have been. What are people going to think? What are people going to say? What's going to happen? What kind of child even is this going to be? Any new father has fears of being a dad. Can you imagine the fears of being a dad to someone you've just been told is God in the flesh? Well, what does that mean for us? Because as I say, we're not like Joseph. We don't, we're not having angels appear in our dreams. We're not betrothed to the virgin mother of Jesus. So how does this apply to us? Well, life is filled with questions and uncertainties and unknowns. It was for Joseph, it is for us. And a common refrain is don't fear. Fear God, but not what's around the corner. Don't fear what's around the corner. Don't fear the unknowns. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a worst case scenario kind of person and you take everything to its worst possible conclusion, and then you're paralyzed by fear of that. And the gospel message, the war of Jesus, the victory of Jesus, is a call to trust God and not fear. Now you might think, well, that's just Pollyannish thinking. But in the text, there's a reason not to fear. The reason not to fear is that Jesus has come and solved our biggest problem. Sin and death are our biggest problem. You, whatever you think is your biggest problem, your biggest problem is actually your sin that separates you from God. It's the fact that you're under the just condemnation of a holy God. It's a fact that your life has an expiration date, and on that date you'll stand before a holy God. And were it not for the blood of Jesus, you would enter into an eternity of judgment and separation in a place called hell. That's a fact. And Jesus has solved that problem by his death and by his blood. And so your biggest problem has been solved. And so the reason we don't fear what's around the corner isn't because it's not going to be hard, or not because it's bad, not because it won't be painful, not because life isn't really filled with a lot of suffering and hardship, because it is. 
We don't fear it because Jesus is there. Jesus is the conquering hero. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. He's reigning on a throne right now. He died for you. And the worst that can happen in life is your death, which means the immediate presence into eternal life, awaiting a future glorified body fit for eternity on a new heaven, on a new earth with a new heaven. So your biggest problem has been solved. So hope, trust in God, don't fear, and third, obey. One of the things we take away from this passage is obedience. Look at verse 24. Joseph wakes up and it says he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Well, what did he do? Number one, he took his wife. Number two, he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And number three, he called his name Jesus. Trust God, fear not, and obey. Now you could write those three things down and that basically summarizes what it means to be a Christian. Trust God, fear not, and obey. There's an old hymn written by a guy named John Samus. John Samus was born in 1846 in Brooklyn. He was a businessman, but then eventually he became a Presbyterian minister, and he moved out here to Los Angeles. Matter of fact, he's buried over at uh, Forest Lawn Memorial. He taught at Biola back when it was called the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. But Samus wrote a song called Trust and Obey. And in the, the refrain of the song is trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And so what Samus sings about is exactly the summary that Joseph's story gives us. Trust God, fear not, and obey. Oh, why do I like this? Because the Christian life is really not that complicated. Joseph got it. Joseph got it. I need to trust God. I need to fear not. And I need to obey what he said. Now you don't know this, but later on in Matthew, Matthew chapter 13, I think it's verse 55, Jesus, after we believe Joseph had died, Jesus as an adult is speaking. And somebody in the crowd says, isn't that the carpenter's son? Joseph was a carpenter. And the word for carpenter actually means handyman. Don't, don't think that this was some guy who went to a four-year degree program somewhere. It might mean contractor, but, but its normal usage was handyman. Joseph wasn't someone that we would think of as intellectual necessarily. But here's the point. The message of the gospel that Jesus has won the war for us, it doesn't require an advanced degree to get. You don't need advanced training. There's no secret handshake to the gospel there's no decoder ring necessary to understand its meaning. Its meaning is simple. Joseph woke up and he got it enough to act on it. Trust God, fear not, and obey. Here's what I love about the fact that this story involves Joseph because the gospel's for everyone. The gospel's for you. The gospel's for me. It's for everyone. Trust God, fear not, and obey. Jesus has come. That's what we celebrate at Christmas came to do what? To save us. That's a war. A war that he fought. He defeated sin and death. And you, this morning, you can grasp that. And you can believe it. And by believing it, you can find eternal life and true happiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you, simply thank you for the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We confess that apart from Jesus, we would have no hope. 
no religion, no 10-step program, no ladder to climb, no list of good works could ever, ever cleanse us from our sin, could ever change our stripes, could ever make us holy. But God, the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, shed on the cross, His sinless life, His perfect faithfulness, His resistance of temptation, the perfect God-man. He alone fought the war we could not fight. He won the victory we could never achieve. And by trusting Him, we participate in all of His victory, both now and in the life to come. God, we pray that You would give each one of us, in our hearts, faith to believe, faith to trust, faith not to fear, and faith to obey. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.